Um, well, you know, I, pre- I preached on peace last week. How many had the most peaceful week of your life? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> because you know, <laughs> you know, you know if, the, if you preach on peace, you know what's going to get tested that week, right? Yeah, so you get on-the-job training of how to manifest peace instantly. The Lord goes, all right, we're going to go for peace. All right, let's go ahead and give a little few trials and tribs and let people manifest peace in the midst of it. And that's a good sign that when the word is contended with, that the word is a word from the Lord. Do you know what I'm saying? You get something, you believe it, you receive it, and then instantly it gets challenged. Then you know a lot of times that's the enemy trying to steal the word that was planted. Does that make sense? And so stay with it. Stay with the word. Stay with the revelation of peace, and let's continue to walk it out. All right, so today we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to have a call to prayer, and uh, it's our final message, like I said, in intimacy and urgency, and I just wanted to give us to start with, I just wanted to give us a reminder about the supremacy of the Word of God. Of course, if you want the the notes, they're online at prayermissionschurch.com. You can get them right there, but I wanted to start our message uh, this morning with a reminder about the supremacy of the Word of God. You know, the Bible is obviously God's word, it's God's will, and when we approach life in the kingdom, we must approach it with, with the, the heart and the mind to say, Lord, what's your desire? What's your will? What's the, what's the expression that you want me to understand? Uh, give me your explanation of things rather than us coming to a situation and bringing our own explanation according to our own knowledge and our own experience. Do you know what I'm saying? We always have to allow the word of God to stand over us to dictate reality to us rather than our circumstances and a very changing worldly environment to tell us what reality is. So the word has to always stand over us, has to always provide the narrative to us, not media, not the news. The word of God provides to us the narrative. And so if you want to find out what's going to happen tomorrow, I guarantee you there's more revelatory understanding in the Bible than in the newspaper. I guarantee you. I'm not saying you should just be completely, you know, without any understanding what's happening in the world around you, but what I am saying is the dictates of our lives should be determined by the Word of God, by God's, you know, God's opinion of things. That's the point. God's, God's desires for things. And, and so our ways will always fall infinitely short. Our reasonings will always fall infinitely short of understanding things according to the way that the Lord really wants us to understand. And so we just can't get locked into our own understanding when we, when we look at anything. And I just felt today, as I'm going to unpack some, some verses, that there is a biblical narrative that the Lord wants us to understand as a, as a spiritual family. And if we approach it with a human lens, we're just going to miss it. We're just going to miss what God wants to say. But if we'll take the scripture and allow the scripture to stand over us, God will rewrite our own hearts into truth. Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't know about you, but my experiences in my life they don't always bring me to truth. A lot of times they bring me to confusion and pain and misunderstanding, and I have to go back, hunker down to the word, and allow the word to plumb line my life. Like this week, I mean, I preached on peace, and if there's anybody that's manifesting peace, it should be me. I preached on it, right? Well, my peace has been attacked this week, which required me not to take my circumstances as truth, but to take the word of God as truth and to bring it right back into my circumstances. And guess what? Change my circumstances. But you know what I realize is it doesn't always change the circumstance. It just changes the way I perceive the circumstance. And that's what I'm trying to say is we got to allow the word to stand over us and allow our perceptions to be aligned with God's desires, God's, you know, plans, God's will. And so when we define life according to our own ways, it's going to be infinitely inferior than when we allow God to define life according to truth from the word. Amen. So I just wanted to get that out. I know that's something that we would understand, but in doing that now, I'm going to take us on a little bit of a Bible study. So I'm going to have a bunch of verses that will come up on the screen. And what I did intentionally in the notes is I didn't put any comments in my notes. I just put verses 
because I want the scripture in a large way to speak for itself. Now, I'll comment, but in, in, in the actual notes of it, it's just gonna be verses. So here's what I wanna do this morning. We're talking intimacy and urgency. I want to define intimacy on God's terms, according to the scripture. I want to define urgency on God's terms, according to the scripture. And then I want God to tell us from the Bible how we are supposed to then live our lives in light of his definitions of intimacy and his definitions of urgency. Very, very simple. All right, let's do this. So first, we're going to define intimacy on God's terms. Now, we've talked a lot about intimacy, intimacy with God. Now, when I search the scripture, I tend to find three different avenues in which the Lord expresses intimacy, okay? Three different ones. One is from the lens of him being a father. The other is from the lens of the son being a bridegroom. And the third is from the lens of us being priests, Okay, let me give you Bible. Father, heart of God, that would be the first one. 2 Corinthians 6, 18, let the, let the depth of this truth sink down in you. 2 Corinthians 6, 18, he says, I will be a father to you. And you shall be my son's and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Beloved, the, we don't have to wonder what God's will is. It's expressed so clearly in the Bible. And the Bible says this, that he predestined us, Ephesians 1, he, pre, he predestined us to adoption before time began. And the eternal heart of God it says, according to the good pleasure of his will, what would please him the most? In the eternal heart of God, he said, I want a family. I want sons and I want daughters. And here's the thing, God, in, in his eternal nature, prior to creation, it says, he, he foreknew you. In other words, when he's dreaming of what would please him the most, a family emerges in, in the eternal heart of God, and you emerge in his heart. He says, I will be a father to you. You will be my son. You will be my daughter. And man, it just makes me, I don't know how that impacts you, but for me, it makes me come back to, what's my relationship with you like? Am I experiencing you as father? Or do I think of you as like, you know, master, you know, slave driver, you know, judge? He primarily doesn't express himself to us in those terms. He primarily expresses himself to us in these three terms that I'm going through right now. And the first is father. Now our challenge is this, is that we have as many definitions of father in the room as we have people. Because each of us have had different experiences. But at the end of the day, there's really only one definer of father and it's the eternal father. He gave us human fathers to speak of himself. A caring, nurturing, instructing, at times correcting, caregiver who protects and stands by and supports and encourages and loves fully who isn't some big boss always sending you away to go do something to make, him, to make himself, you know, pleased by your work, but the one that wants you near, that draws you close. I will be a father to you. And I know we've talked about it, but man, we can't stop talking about it because this is awesome yeah. that the God of all creation, he wants to be Father, I'll be a father to you. You shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. First John 3, I read this a few weeks ago. It says, behold, 
I love that word behold. I don't know if I've said it recently, but I like to remind myself because every time I've gone through the Bible and read every behold, and every time there's a behold, it's this unveiling. It's like, it's like God is saying, voila, behold. <laughs> you know. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, exclamation point. I mean, John the apostle is going like, behold, what manner of love is this? that we should be called the children of God. Because the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. The world doesn't even know what we're like because we're God's kids. Listen to me, beloved. If you're not experiencing that sense of intimacy and nearness with the Father today, if you don't have that, that sensation of his Father heart, his tender love toward you, man, there's, what, what we've got to do is we've got to get whatever's in the way, whatever's hindering that relationship, we've got to get that out of the way because you weren't made to live at a distance. You were made to be his son or his daughter living in intimacy with him. Yeah. We like to say this, that God is after everything that hinders love, yeah. everything that's in the way, even sometimes if it's us. <laughs> Sometimes we're the one that hinders love the most. All of our little hangups and issues. We like to call them issues because it doesn't sound as bad. All the little things that get in the way of intimacy. God is radical about getting those out of the way because he made you for love. He made you for relationship. That's what this is about. Look, we can get so confused about the biblical narrative, but what do you see at the beginning of creation? You see God in the garden with Adam walking in the cool of the day. What's he doing? He's being a father to Adam. That's what humans are made for, to be his children. I just think it's fantastic that in the eternal mind of God, he thought about what he wanted. He wanted a family, and that's me and you. That's what we get to be. Behold what manner of love this is. We should be called the children of God. Amen. So that's the first way that God expresses himself in intimacy. The second way is something we, we call the bridal paradigm. It, it's not a biblical phrase, just like father heart isn't a biblical phrase, but it describes the way that God expresses himself. And so the father wanted a family and the son wants a bride. And that's you and I. Just as the Father makes us his sons and daughters, Jesus makes us his bride. Now, some of you men right there, I know you're like, well, you know, that might be somebody else, but that's not me. Yes, it is. Listen, all the ladies in here are sons of God. All the men in here are the bride of Christ. That's just how it is. It's not a gender weird thing like what's going on in the earth. It's a spiritual truth of intimacy that we're supposed to have with father and son. Amen. And so a lot of times the men, they have a problem with bride, bride, bridal paradigm, bridal language. And they're like, well, I'm just tough. And they, what their problem is, they're imagining themselves like wearing a white dress, puckering up or something, giving Jesus a kiss. And that's not it at all. I think Niall just spit his coffee when I said that. <laughs> That's not it at all. What it is, what he's tapping into in this bridal language is, yes, there'll be divine union forever. You'll be joined to God forever. There's that. But there is the passion and the violence of a bridegroom who loves his people. Okay, And so what you see is the gospel story comes out through humans all the time. It comes out in all these stories. We love the story of, of you know, the hero, prince, or king that rescues the damsel in distress. We love it. In fact, we love it so much, we tell that story a bunch of different ways and name it different stories. But it's all the same. They're all the same. It, it, it's like Sleeping Beauty... <laughs> right? Cinderella. They're all the same story. 
Braveheart. It's the same story, y'all. Why? It comes out of human hearts because it's written on our heart. That God is passionate. He is, he is, I mean, he is intense in love for his people, and he will fight for us to the end. And so when we see Jesus, when we see him in his return, he's coming back, right? And he comes back with the vengeance of the Lord. And the Bible says that he's going he's gonna to release vengeance on all those who have defrauded his people. He's coming back with the fury of a bridegroom whose bride has been mistreated. Yeah, dude, you better get the dress on because that's the Jesus. I don't know. That's the team I'm on. This isn't about pucker up and give me a kiss Jesus. This is about Jesus with fire in his eyes fighting battles. I can't fight and I can't win. Why does he fight him? Because he loves me. And that puts something of confidence inside of me. You can't get it any other way. My dad loves me. He wants me to be with him. He's, he's love itself. The son of God, my bridegroom, Jesus, he will fight for me because he's passionate for me. This is the way that he expresses himself. When you read the Old Testament and you see God and he says, you, you've committed harlotry, Israel. You've gone away from me. He's expressing himself as a defrauded husband. And he says, I will let you go after those false gods, and you'll find out, and he says it to Hosea, you'll find out that they were worse, far worse for you than I ever was. He goes, I'll even hedge you in with thorns. And Hosea, or have, uh, Hosea 2. And he says, I'll hedge you in with thorns. He goes, and you'll turn to the right or left. And the reason why there's pain and disobedience is because he's trying to protect you from a worse pain in the hands of the enemy. And he's expressing his zeal for you, that he wants you. Come on now. I can get on with this. And so when you saw Braveheart, the PG version, of course, when you saw that, <laughs> and you see Braveheart, and he comes in there, and he's riding in, and he looks like he's giving himself up. He's got his hands behind his head. Some of y'all remember this? And, they, and he pulls out that sword, and he starts... He starts destroying everything that would hinder love. I think about Jesus. He is fighting for me. He's fighting for me. That's who he is. And so Matthew 22 too, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. It's interesting to me because the father wants a family and the entirety of the father's activity through the spirit is to introduce us to his son. And then when the son meets us, guess what he wants to do? Introduce us to the father. And so these two sides of the kingdom, the, the intimacy of the bridal paradigm and, and the, the comfort of the father heart, they're two sides of the same coin. Isaiah 54, verse 5, it says this, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And your redeemer is the holy one of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. Your maker is your husband. Beloved, do you understand that what's burning in the heart of God for humanity is love unbridled and unrestrained that will stop at nothing to have that love accepted and realized? What do you see in the cross is God fiery in love even sacrificing his own son and the son sacrificing himself. Why? For love. This is what's burning in the heart of God. When we're talking about intimacy, we're talking about a paradigm of the kingdom of God where God is always pursuing his people for love. And we've got it goofed up so much got it flipped around and we think it's about God wants to get us to do something for him and we just prove to him how much we really are faithful then maybe he'll bless us and like us and that's just not it he wins us through love until we just give up no really you've been there 
You're like, there's no way you can love me. There's no way. Look how messed up I am. And he keeps showing up. And he keeps showing up. Until you're like, man, dude, you won't leave me alone. Like, I really am trying to run. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. He can't deny himself. What does that mean? He can't deny himself. He's burning in love for us. That's what it means. He can't deny himself. He's after us. And so in this thing is he will love us until we just go limp. You know, you just give up. I'll quit trying to run. You start running, he's like, I'm so much faster than you. <laughs> we, we run, he's there. We run away, he's there. Take, he goes, you, you, you try to get into heaven, guess where I live? He goes, you're going to go to hell, guess where I go? I go to the bars too, I have no problem. I'm not scared of it. He's not intimidated by your frailty and your weakness and your runnings. He's not intimidated by your brokenness and your sin and your rebellion. Your rebellion is hilarious to him. Because he knows how to hunt down the rebellious. Just ask the prodigal son. Just ask Paul the apostle. Just ask David. Just ask them all. No, no human doing intimidates God at all. His, his, the fire of his love is ferocious. It's love that's stronger than death. It's jealousy, it's more cruel than the grave. Many waters cannot quench love. And that's what's burning in him for you. Not for someone else, for you. And that's what he's after. He's after intimacy. He doesn't want you to do something for him. He wants you. Because when he gets you, you'll give up. You'll stop fighting. You stop trying to prove yourself to everybody. You stop trying to hide yourself in shame. When he gets you, you'll go limp. Say, just have me. You have me. Do you remember when you gave up? Some of you haven't given up yet. It's okay. He's going to get you. No. We get you to sing prayers all the time that you don't even realize you just signed up for. Well, you sing it. You'll sing you know, how far will you let me go? How abandoned will you let You sing all this stuff. Take my life and let it be a fragrant offering unto thee. I mean, we sing all of them. And, and we sign up for stuff. God goes, oh, I liked that song. I'm going to use that when you're running away from me. And he's just being faithful to your requests. He is the original fatal attraction. I don't know what that movie was, but he is after you unto death. He's after you. Can't stop him. Father heart, bridal paradigm, and the third is the priesthood. All believers are priests. Now, this is something that's really language that's odd to us, especially in, in Protestantism and in, in, in charismatic uh, evangelical Christianity. We, we don't think priests. We just think everybody's got access to God. And that's the point. There isn't an individual assigned with a, a backstage pass and everybody else has got general admission. Right. And listen, you, you can't, you just got to switch that, Okay. Now, in the kingdom, we, we have hierarchy and leadership. The Lord puts that in place. Everybody's got a job to do and a role to play. All the body and every joint is supposed to supply. Everybody is supposed to be engaged in the work of the kingdom. And there's leadership in the kingdom. But that doesn't mean that, that one person's got a, a higher corner on the market with God than you do. Which is why we emphasize this place of prayer that we would come together as a people who are priests unto God. And what are priests? Priests are people with access to his presence. Priests have access. There's not just one person with access. It's all of us. Okay, the, the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we had the high priest. He went in once a year. He came in with a sacrifice, and that sacrifice enabled him to, to make provision for the sin of all the people. One guy ministering for all the people. But when Jesus died on the cross, right, the veil of the temple was ripped in two. The Holy Spirit's no longer in that little you know, box anymore. He's out in the hearts of humanity. All those that will say yes to Jesus, he comes and makes his home inside of us. I've always thought about that. It's like inside of us. Wow. 
Why inside of us? Because it's as close as he could get. He didn't want to be a hitchhiker on your shoulder. He wanted to be inside your heart. And each of us has access. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we have access to the very throne of God. Right now, by the blood of Jesus, through a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through his flesh being torn, we have access to draw near to the throne of grace for help. To receive help when we have need. And if, if you'll just get it, you always have need. While you're a human being, which is forever now, you'll always need him. So he opened up the passage through the blood of his son so you could always have access. And when you draw near, the one that you have access to is your father. And sitting at his right hand is your bridegroom. It's the most welcoming, awesome place there is in all creation, and it's yours. And why is it all set up like this? Why did God set the whole thing up like this? He wants intimacy with people. And so the scripture says it this way, Revelation 1.6, it says, He has made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. And the thing about priests is they minister to God. They minister to God on behalf of men and they minister to men on behalf of God. But here's the most amazing thought to me is that God wants us to minister to him. God wants us to, to sing love songs to him. He likes to give love, and he wants to receive love. Sometimes we put God out there in some sort of, you know, holy castle all by himself, and we, and we say it doctrinally, he has need of nothing, but simply because he has need of nothing doesn't mean he doesn't have any desires. Right. And he desires your love. He desires your worship, your voice. Not, not just my voice or the person sitting next to you. He wants your voice. He wants to hear you say out of your mouth, Lord, I love you. And he wants to say back to you, I love you too, son, daughter. I love you too, beloved. See, he wants that interchange. And so what does he do with the cross? Is he rips the veil, gives us complete access, makes us all priests. The entire kingdom is priests. We all have access to his presence. And here's the thing, not just his presence, because angels are in his presence, we have access to his heart. And this is the thing, man. It, oh, gosh. The fact that we have access to the very heart of God, if we are not accessing his heart regularly, what are we doing? I mean, I don't want to ride this, but we access media and movies and social things and our phone, I mean, a million times a day, we're accessing it. But are we accessing his heart? Because that's where we're supposed to live. That's what you're made to live for. You're, you're woven together to, you're, you're made, constructed, constructed by God to access his heart and to live alive because of his heart. Life, his presence flowing into you. That's what we're constructed for. I had a great day yesterday. I watched the Bulldogs put a whoop down on Tennessee. And there's something in me that enjoyed that. But if that's all I got, I would be so short of what I've lived for, what I'm made for. I would be so, I would live so inferior to what I'm actually constructed for. Because, I mean, a 26-point victory is awesome. It's awesome. <laughs> but it doesn't scratch the itch in here. There's something more that I'm made for, something eternal, something fiery, something beyond, so, something so transcendent. There's, my soul tells me I'm made for something more, right? Eternity is written on our hearts, the scripture says. You know you're made for something more, and it's to interface with God. 
That's why he made us priests. So we would have access. Amen. All right, so that's the intimacy piece. I'm just, again, some of it's re, recap, uh, recapping, some of it's new thoughts, but the point is he expresses his heart through the scripture continuously as, as an intimate God who wants, he wants intimacy with his people, father heart, bridal ter- uh, paradigm, and the priesthood of believers. Amen. All right, now secondly, let's talk about urgency. And the reason why urgency becomes a theme throughout the scripture is because man rejects God's offer of intimacy, okay? Simply put, sin is just man saying no to God's invitation of intimacy. And when men reject God's invitation that we would live in relationship with him, they, they live in opposition to him. They choose things that are the opposite of the ways of God. Isn't that right? And so because of that, because of the opposition and, and, and the, the turning away, the rebellion of human hearts, there becomes this urgent theme in scripture where God is on a search and, and, and rescue mission. He's coming after people. And he's seeking us, he's pursuing us, and he uses a variety of means by which to capture us. And this is where the themes of of judgment show up throughout the scripture. It's humanity saying no to the activity of God's invitations of love. And so what does he do? He hedges us in. Those are judgments. When God hedges his people in and he doesn't allow us to go left and right, those are judgments. Judgment in itself, that term, it's it's not a good term or a bad term. It's just what God is able to do because he's God. When he makes a decision, that's a judgment. When a judge makes a decision for or against, it's just a judgment. God operates in judgments because why? Because he's going after intimacy. He's trying to bring people into what will give them life instead of what will kill them. It's not dissimilar from you when your child sticks its finger in the light socket and you go, no! Is it because you wanted to yell? What's behind that? Love is behind that. Why? Because they're going to kill themselves. Right? And it evokes this response of, no! And you have to train that thing. You have to teach that thing so they don't go around thinking, man, that light socket's awesome. Watch, wow, that's awesome. You know, you, you got to train that out of them, right? Because they'll kill themselves on that thing, won't they? If you don't train it. And that's what the Lord does with us. He tries to train us. He tries to train his people out of things that will destroy us. We see it with Israel. And what, what God always does is he does the least severe means to get the greatest response of love from his people. Always. Some people have God, they think God's sitting back. They're like, oh, yeah, I can't wait till they mess up. I am, oh, oh, I am gonna smash them. I cannot wait. And we think he's just like ready to drop the hammer every time somebody does wrong. That's not the point. The point is, he goes, I want intimacy with them. They keep running after other things. That thing's going to destroy them. I have to bring in a boundary so they don't destroy themselves. And so there's this, through the themes of scripture, there's this urgency in the heart of God, right? You see him, he's rescuing humanity. He's calling us back into relationship. And so in recognition of sin, in recognition of human wandering and backsliding and rebellion, he has biblical prescriptions. Second Chronicles chapter 7 is one of them. So I, re- I was reminiscing, uh, the first message I ever preached was Second Chronicles 7.14. First message I ever preached. I don't know what I said, but I know that was the passage. I don't want to hear the tape. Dustin told us he's got the tape of his first message. We were like, oh, we'd like to hear that. (laughs) You know, you don't say it the same way when you're on your first message as you would 25 years later, you know. But the verse is still so packed, and it's God's prescription in light of sin and backsliding. So let's read it again, 2 Chronicles 7, but let's read verse 13 with it. He says, when I shut up heaven and there is no rain... 
or command the locust to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Now, why would he do any of that? Because of their backslidings and their wanderings and him showing the wages of sin is death. He says, when all that's going on, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, he gives us prescription when there's backsliding. We, we humble ourselves. We turn away from sin and we turn towards God. And, and with fasting, we seek him in a place of prayer. We pursue God. Joel 2, same scenario. Well, just read the verse. Again, at this time, Israel is in a major state of backsliding. And there have been, if, when you read the book of Joel, there have been locust plagues, just like what he said to Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7. It's actually happening now. It's like a thousand years later, and it's happening. And he says, now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Do you even hear in the middle of that the heartbeat of intimacy? He's urgent because he wants intimacy. Because return to me. I remember Jeremiah 2, I mean, the nation's completely backslidden, and he says to them, he goes, I remember you, Israel. I remember you. And, and the tenderness of your youth, I remember you. Return to me. So he says, return to the Lord your God. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. Who knows if he'll turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So here in these two passages, when we see that there's backsliding, when we see that there's wickedness in the land, when we see that even in the, in the people of God, there is this unwillingness of, of, of full surrender and obedience, the Lord then gives a prescription to the people People of God, and he says, uh, humble yourself, pray, fast, seek my face, return to me, and I will heal you. So when we talk about intimacy, we've got to know that's what's burning in God's heart, and then when we talk about urgency, we have to understand that it's in light of the status of the earth. Now, I, you don't have to be a prophet to look around in our society today and recognize things aren't awesome. They're rough. The moral climate of our society has completely, I mean, capsized. Stuff that 10 years ago was completely taboo. And unanimously, people would say, well, that's just, that's just wrong. Now those kind of things are commonplace and accepted as normative in our society. What's happening? There is a heightening of sin, a heightening of wickedness. And the people of God, beloved, at this moment, we can't stand by and have little happy, clappy times all the time and act like nothing's going on. We've got to get a recognition that, yes, God's burning in intimacy. Yes, he's gracious. He's, he's slow to anger. He's merciful. But at the same time, he's just. And, and wickedness and sin, it's not going to go unpunished. And the tide and the current of this world system, it is moving at a more rapid pace than we've ever seen in human history. Just consider it. Think this through for a minute. We're looking at America, and I would just tell you, uh, when I've gone to different nations, a lot of nations, they look at America, they go, you guys are so prude over there. I remember I was in Germany about, I don't know, maybe a decade ago, and I was sitting there, and I was talking to this guy in this restaurant, and he says, you guys, you're just so conservative in America. I go, well, what do you mean? He goes, I mean, gay marriage, what's, what's wrong with it if it's love? This is 10 years ago, because 10 years ago in America, it was taboo. He goes, man, I mean, you guys are just like, you know, a bunch of nuns and, and monks. I'm like, have you seen Hollywood lately, bro? Because we're not. 
He goes, I just can't understand what's wrong with your society there that you'd be so, so stingy with people. I, mean, I remember him just saying this to me. This is, gosh, this is 2005, so whatever that's, 13 years ago. Well, it was like that. I mean, 2005, you never would have thought that gay marriage would be a, would be a thing. You just never would have thought. And I remember, man, when that thing came down and then the, the White House affirmed it and then they, they put the, the rainbow colors on the White House. And then they, what did they do? They crucified anybody who would say anything about it publicly. If you came out and said homosexuality is a sin, they still do it now. And if you're in here and you're struggling with the same-sex attraction, we love you and we want to help you get completely free of that. We don't want to shun you in any way, but we have to be clear in the love of God and tell you that is a sin and it will kill you. It will kill you. It's not setting you free. It's, it's putting a noose around your neck and it's, stro- it's uh, strangling you and choking the life out of you. We want to see you free. I've seen dozens of young men and women set free from that. And, 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 you know, they try, well, they try to pray the gay away, all that mess. Listen, 15 years ago, this isn't even a conversation, y'all. It wasn't even, everybody knew that that was not, not the normal way of things. But now the society has turned and we're just like the frog in the proverbial frog in the kettle. We just get turned up a little by a little by a little by a little and it just begins to boil and you don't even know. And this whole thing about gender fluidity. I mean, the stuff that's out there right now, it's crazy town. It's wild. But what is that? It's what Daniel 11 actually says, that there's going to come in the fullness of time that the sin of people is going to grow to its heightened place. To the, it will get as wicked as it's ever been in society. And it's in that context that all the end of the age events begin to unfold. Well, what the Lord gives us narratively through the scripture is with a heart of urgency that when things are growing that way in the society, the people of God are A, to repent of their own sin because the church's job isn't to sit there and point a long wicked finger at the world and go, you guys are horrible. That's not the church's job. The church's job is to turn from their own sin and turn towards God in fasting and prayer, crying out for mercy, and then with that heart of love and compassion, share generously with people who don't know the Lord, inviting them out of the destruction. That's our job. But the Lord gives the prescription. Turn, humble yourself, fast, and pray. Okay? Now, secondly, when we talk about urgency, there's a whole nother avenue, and they actually coincide, they actually intersect, but there's multiple themes of urgency through the scripture, and they, they're in light of the day of the Lord. They're in light of the Lord's return. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the, the theme, the thematic progression of the Bible, you find that wickedness and sin will come to its height at the same time that the Lord Jesus gets ready to return. And so these, these themes, they inter, intersect. And let me just read a few verses. Here's Jesus on this subject about his return. Matthew, uh, Mark 13. He says, but of that day, talking about the day the, the Son of Man will return, but of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. He says, take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. I love, I think it's the message says, the gatekeeper to watch. I love that gatekeeper. Verse 35, watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Now, he's not talking about a physical slumber. He's talking about a spiritual slumber. He's talking about kind of like going through life, acting like everything is fine when everything is actually exploding, when sin and wickedness are growing to their height, and you just live like everything's cool. He said, there's all these things, these wicked things that are be going on. And he says, now I'm telling you, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. Talking to like the main guys. He goes, guys, watch and pray. When all this is going on in the world, watch and pray. 
Be alert. Be ready. Don't be asleep in the hour. And beloved, I will tell you, this is one of the greatest concerns of my own heart. If I could say something about the American church, there are little pockets where people are starting to come awake. But by and large, I see the American church and I think, wake up! Wake up! It's, it, this is not like, hey guys, maybe wake up. It's time to get up a little bit, maybe. I mean, we are getting to the place where the house is on fire. The smoke is filling the rooms. People are getting, you know, completely overcome with the, with the, the fragrance of smoke. It's just, it's just about to kill everybody. And, and we're going, oh, maybe, maybe wake up. No, no, no. If the house is burning down, you go, wake up! And I'm telling you, there is a serious concern in my own heart that the American church right now, we are so happy, clappy, we're so drunk on the spirit of the age, and we're so given to all of our Christian trappings. We've got more radio, more music, more publications, more online periodicals. Oh, if you look at the American church, we just argue about doctrine as our main thing almost. But where's the people whose hearts are alert and awake and understanding the times? Where's the sons of Issachar anointing that realizes we're in a moment that requires urgency? Where is that? Where is it? And look, I might seem extreme to you. I really might seem crazy to you. But here's the deal. If the hurricane is coming and the scripture is clear and makes it evident that it's coming and you're in your house, I come to your house, I say, get out of the house. And listen, that wouldn't be a problem. If the, the meteorologist shows us category five, it's about to hit, and I come try to wake you up, get up out of the house. Everybody think, oh, that's good. But I'm telling you, there is a spiritual hurricane on the horizon, and the church is almost dead asleep. And it's time that we wake up. Sunday morning needs to wake up. Wednesday night needs to wake up. The youth need to wake up. The old folk need to wake up. The young folk need to wake up. The pastors need to wake up. We're in a moment. We've got to wake up. And I get, I get to the place where I realize I'm a little intense. I'm a little over the top. I could freak people out. But at this moment, there is not really a reason to be conservative with the sound of the alarm. No alarm. No alarm tickles somebody out of sleep. It doesn't. That's, that's not what alarms are made for. Alarms are made to say, excuse me. Would you get up, please? No. Alarms are made to startle you. And I'm telling you, the status of the earth right now requires the church to take serious action. Listen, I love you. I love this spiritual family. I, we're, we're five, six months of whatever we are on this merge. It's beautiful what God's done. The unity is brought. It's crazy good. But, man, wake up! God's calling Here's the thing. You might be going, well, man, I didn't sign up for all that. I mean, it's kind of crazy. Wake up. Hey, hey, I promise you. Now, we've got some good friends that are pastors that are waking up people, but there's a bunch of fo folks out there, a bunch of places out there. You can go out there and go be, go be asleep. If you don't want to wake up, there's a lot of places you can go be asleep. It's not the hour to be asleep, beloved. It's the hour to watch. It's the hour to pray. It's the hour to be alert. It's the hour to be on, on focus, not deluded and dissuaded and deceived. That's why I'm so concerned about our social media. Our social media has got us talking about everything that does not matter. It, I'm telling you, it's got us talking about everything that does not matter. We're arguing about Kavanaugh. We're arguing about this. We're arguing about that. What's the new thing we're going to argue about? Give us something to argue about so we can all pick sides and, and poke at each other. And let's get it in the church too so we're all divided so we can't even come into oneness and have an anointing upon us for the glory of God to reside on us. Don't you see? It's, an, it's, it's a plan of the enemy to stir up anger and dissension so we can't come together. I'm telling you, 
the alarm and the trumpet has gone off in the spirit. Do you understand Jeremiah? He had seen the standards of war. He'd heard the sound of the invading armies 30 years before Babylon ever invaded Israel. Jeremiah, he's shouting, we've got to return. We've got to repent. We've got to turn back to God. It's 30 years later that Babylon's going to invade. Do you realize Jeremiah was fresh off of Josiah's revival? In fact, he was in the middle of it when he started saying, judgment is coming. The people didn't want to hear it. And what happened? Babylon came in and they burned the entire place to the ground. All of Israel went into captivity. They burned the temple to the ground. And the famine was so great, and it's ugly in the scripture, the famine was so great that mothers were eating their children. That's what the Bible tells us. And if they would have just heeded Jeremiah's voice, Jeremiah had not one convert because they were asleep. Here's our Jesus telling us that when you begin to understand that you're in the season, when you begin to see that the context of the earth is ripe for the return of the Son of Man, to watch, to pray, to be alert, to be sober. And probably in my experience, I've been saved since I was, well, I've been saved a while, <laughs> over 30 years. I don't think I've ever seen the church so asleep. Luke 21 Here's Jesus again. Take heed to yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. See, there's, there's might that God wants to give the people of God that will enable them to stand through the storms. But the, the people of God have to, be, they have to be watchful and awake and not weighed down with the cares of this life. They have to be above the fray and the noise. They have to hear a word from heaven and, and operate and act on it. This is what the church needs right now to become a bride that's comparable to the Son of God. Last thought. So with these two trumpet blasts of truth that are narratively in the scripture about God's heart for intimacy and then how to act when we see sin is in the land and the Lord's return is near, maybe just the context of the earth, it, it speaks of the nearness of the Lord's return. When you see this, this urgency and this intimacy, what does the Bible prescribe? Let's narratively understand what the scripture gives us. Two last verses. Joel 2 again. Just to continue with the passage that we were reading a moment ago, he says, blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? It should not be, beloved, that the unsaved folk can't tell that God is among the people of God. So the prescription is to gather yourself in fasting and prayer. Gather yourself. People try to like, well, what are, what are you doing in that prayer room? We're gathering ourselves with fasting and prayer, we're assembling the congregation, we're gathering the elders, we're gathering together in solemn assembly. If you wanna know at the kind of the core, what is our prayer room? It's a perpetual solemn assembly that never stops in light of the context of the earth. It's a biblical obedience in an hour of great crisis. That's what we're doing. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful place for devotion. Yeah, it's a beautiful place for corporate intercession. Yeah, it's a beautiful place to read the Bible and let the word of God come alive in our hearts. But at the core of it, there's an urgency that's fueling who we are as a people so that we would take our watch in the hour that Jesus said to watch. Does that make sense? He says, he says watch and pray. Well, somebody goes, well, I really feel the Lord better when I'm at home with my candle in my chair you know, with my special frappe cappuccino latte. And I just really feel the presence of the Lord. You know, and I just put that, those three songs from Bethel on repeat, and that's just the Lord every time. And I'm like, that's awesome. Do that with your frappe latte cappuccino. But that, that's fine. Do that. There's no biblical prohibition to that. In fact, that's good. There's a lot of things that check the box there. But it doesn't check this box, the gather together the assemble the elders, the call the congregation. This is so intense in a time of crisis. It says, hey, bridegroom, brides, don't even get married right now. I'm not, I'm not putting a prohibition on marriages. Don't think I just said that. Paul did for a season. He said, As for me, I think it's better in light of the, the crisis that we're in that people don't get married, but hey, whatever. But I'm not, I'm not even doing that, so I'm not saying that. I can see it. I can see the, the blog right now. But what I'm saying is, in light of the intensity of the hour with the coming crisis in, in Israel's time, they said, come out of the chamber and let's fast and pray. The Lord said that. So gather everybody together, fast and pray. Guess what they didn't do? Gather everybody together and fast and pray. Guess what happened? Babylon completely savaged Israel, took them into captivity. There's always a biblical prescription in a time of crisis to bring the power of the kingdom. Guys, what did we do at Stone Mountain? We gathered together in solemn assembly in light of the crisis of racism in our nation. And we said, no, we're going to cry out to God. We're going to repent of our sin. We're going to ask God to release the power of the kingdom and revival. And so that's what the house of prayer is. At the core, it's a perpetual solemn assembly. And then lastly, and I know I've gone a little long, Luke 2, 36, last thought, and then we'll pray and dismiss, and we'll stay 10 minutes, we'll take a 10 minute break and then we'll have a, a time of question and answer. I, I wanna call people to engagement. You really can live this way. You don't have to live compartmentalized in your Christianity. Christianity doesn't have to be a Sunday morning thing for you. You're part of a spiritual family that we are vibing with the heart of God all day, every day. There's a prayer room that's beating with the presence of God. You can be a part of it. It's for you. Last verse, Luke 2. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and lived with her husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Quickly, this little lady Anna, if we imagine that she got married when she was about 17, she stays married seven years and tragedy strikes her life and around age 24, she's widowed. She loses her husband. And in the middle of that tragedy, she makes the wisest decision one could make. Instead of trying to figure out how will I order my life, she runs headlong into the Lord. And the Bible says that for 60 years, she served the Lord with fastings and prayers night and day. Now just think that through. 60 years. Our little prayer room's been going about 12 years. I mean, 10 years feels like we won a war just to get 10. Well, Anna, she's about six times us. Five times us. 12 years, we won't, let's not delete those two. So 12 times five, 60 years. She labored before the Lord in intercession. Oh, let's do the math again. This is before Jesus came, before the cross. She's not even born again. She doesn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues. She has laboring Old Testament prayers, night and day, day and night, slugging away. And what happens is this. She comes in, in the instant that Simeon is prophesying over Jesus. And here's what I believe. 60 years of her life in intercession were all realized in one moment when God himself was presented before her. See, I think somewhere along the journey she knew she was praying for Messiah's coming. 
10 years in, she was probably feeling like we do. Like, what are we doing? 20 years in, she maybe started getting some clarity. 30 years in, I'm convinced she knew. She was a prophetess, the Bible says. She knew what she was praying for. 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. What if she'd given up at 59 years? At 60 years, God in the flesh is in front of her and a life of intercessions have been realized. You know what I believe? I believe this, that God's taking the same spirit that was on Anna, that same grace and anointing. He's putting it on an entire generation that will seek him in fasting and prayer. But it's not for Jesus' first coming, it's for his second coming. And beloved, we have this unique gift that even in weakness, even in just complete, utter weakness, God has graced us to carry a solemn assembly, a, a night and day prayer reality for 12 years. This is who we are at the core. And so this grace isn't just for the full-time intercessors. It, it's not just you know, for, for, for the Annas, for the, for the 60-year-old uh, widows. Th- this grace is for the entire body of Christ. This is what the Lord wants to release on the earth is a fasting and praying bride in light of the hour whose hearts are burning for the bridegroom so that Jesus, when he returns, he comes back for a bride that looks just like him. Amen and amen. All right, let's all stand. We're gonna pray, we'll be dismissed. Pizza's coming. We'll do a Q&A, but I wanna pray something specific. And if you can stay, let's stay. And if you have to go, I get it, I, I get it, trust me. That's n- n- no, nothing negative. But here's, the, here's the, the call, and I just wanna pray over us, and then we'll dismiss. I don't, do we, we may have a worship team. Uh, sure. I'm just not good at that, am I? Um, let's pr- I just need actually a keyboardist. Or just, you're, you're good, Harrison. <laughs> just play your guitar. Finger picking. I just want to pray this. I just want to ask the Lord to release that grace that was on Anna, on us as a spiritual family. And, and some of you right now, even while I was preaching about urgency, your heart was burning. You're feeling stirred. You might be a full-blown called into the marketplace. You know that's where God's got you. That's totally good. That's fine. But as a spiritual family, hearing the word of the Lord and then responding, saying, I want that grace on me that I could serve the Lord before him in fasting and prayer as part of a corporate family that, that engages this way. I want to pray for you. So let me, let's just pray. So Lord, right now in the name of Jesus, Here we are, and Lord, we know you're making something of us that we have not yet fully understood. But we see, God, that there is in the earth an hour of crisis that the church needs to respond to, that your heart is burning for intimacy with your people. And you've also given prescription that in an hour of backsliding, the people of God should respond and fasting and prayer. And you've given us the grace to host night and day prayer. We don't think of that as some sort of work of arrogance. We think of that only by the grace of God. And so Lord, we understand that just like Anna received an anointing and a grace to stand before you in fasting and prayer, that that's something that you're releasing on many, that same grace. And there's many in our spiritual family who feel that, who sense that. And some of you, you say, you know what? I feel like I'd like to serve the Lord full time. I don't know how these missionaries work, but man, I'd love to do that full time, night and day, serving the Lord and fasting. I'd love to do that. Some of you, you know, you're solid. You're called to the marketplace or or, or you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a homeschool mom or you've got a job in some sort of area and you know you're solid. That's who you're supposed to be vocationally, but your heart's burning with this. You say, God, I want that grace like what was on Anna. I want it on my life. I want to live this way. And so if any of that applies to you, I feel like the Lord just wants to release grace on us as a spiritual family. So maybe you'd say, you know what? I don't know how it would work for me. Maybe there's a change for me in the future and I would be full-time before the Lord in the the place of prayer and full-time ministry. Or, or maybe you'd say, you know what, I just want to burn with this. I know I'm called to the marketplace or I'm called to be a mom or a, whatever, but, but I want to burn with this as, a, as a, a life definer, how I live. 
in light of the hour. If, if that's for you in any way, I just want to pray for you. If that's you, I just want to invite you to raise your hand all across the room. All across the room. I'm just going to ask for grace to be released. See, God, make of us a forerunner people serving you and fasting and prayer. Lord, all over the room, you see every hand. So right now, I'm asking the very grace, like what was on Anna, release it on us. That's, that, that's 2 Chronicles 7. We'd humble ourselves and pray, and we turn from our wicked way. We turn towards you. And let fasting and prayer and worship and intimacy, let it be our portion in this hour. Let our hearts burn with this very grace that we as a spiritual family would steward a lampstand that burns night and day. So Father, just like what was on Anna right now I ask, in the name of Jesus, release it on us. Release it on us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Let's just simmer in this just for a moment.